everybody. I'm Frankie. I think you should redo that because it sounded like you went really quiet. Okay. Let me move my microphone closer. To my face. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Frankie. And I'm Daniel. And this is Propagated Podcast. everyone welcome back it's been a million and five years uh we took a break for personal reasons and also professional reasons and everything happened and then we recorded and then the audio went wrong and now here we are <laughs> you know i would love to say that we're not a mess but i personally am a mess so here you go this has been a minute but we're, we're getting back on track here's the thing every time you record a podcast there's probably going to be audio issues so if you're thinking about recording a podcast Maybe don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Damn. It's the best. Damn. I love this podcast. <laughs> this was a terrible idea and I hate it and you all should too. <laughs> There's also the option of not. <laughs> oh my God. JK, I love this. This is my favorite part of the week. <laughs> well, I think you had the article this week, right? Oh, fuck, I did. Hold on. <laughs> um, Forgot about that. One second. It's, it's still pulled up because you know I don't get rid of my tabs. Yeah, yeah. Always a million open tabs. I don't know how you can do it. I it, I mean, I get it, but also it stresses me out. It gives, it makes me happy because then I know that everything I want to look at is still there. But then you have one from like 2008 and you're like, wow, this Tumblr is no longer active. <laughs> you know, I struggle with object permanence, so... <laughs> I need stuff to Same. exist forever. <laughs> Speaking of, though, I found my Tumblr. Um, please don't go looking for it. <laughs> I'm absolutely going to go looking for it now. <laughs> it's like half of it is like slightly problematic. And then the other half is like amazing artwork that I used to do. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, I was like, I was like half cool. <laughs> you were working on it, you know, I was Life's working on it. I figured it out. Life's a journey. And by slightly problematic, I mean I was obsessed with ancient aliens. <laughs> okay, that that might be more than slightly <laughs> problematic, honestly. At the, at the end of the day, Frankie, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That might be pretty bad. Uh, yeah, anyways, I'm, I'm really glad I am who I am today. And I would never go back in time. <laughs> I sometimes still put on ancient aliens, but just to fall asleep because I've watched them so many times when I was a kid that they just like are good background noise but yeah for sure but i like had like an actual real crush on the guy with the hair that goes straight up i don't know if we have enough time to delve into that today frankie but <laughs> another day another day, another day <laughs> hey we should do an episode on crop circles though that'd be cool i'm into that all right well i did get an article for this week though um it's called the big bloom how flowering plants change the world and i found it on nat geo um, I, it does not have a date as to when it was posted, but uh, the author is Michael Clesius. I hope that's how you say it. Maybe Clesius, Clesius, Clesius. Anyways, Michael, I hope you don't mind that I'm butchering your name. <laughs> but the whole gambit behind this this article is essentially when you look into prehistory and like into the fossil record and stuff like that, you didn't really see um, flowers until about 130 million years ago, which, sure, that's a really long fucking time. But 
in the amount of history that we've had and can look back to in the fossil record, that's actually a relatively short amount of time. And plants used to proliferate without flowers, which still happens, you know, occasionally with certain types of plants. But typically your most successful plants and the plants that we see the most of are now flowering plants and they're of the flowering plant families in the modern world. Mm-hmm. I feel like my voice sounds weird today. No, I think it sounds great. We're just, you know, <laughs> talking about ancient aliens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why that gives me so much joy, but it absolutely does. Because <laughs> oh, you're into the secret part of my um, 2012 life. <laughs> Actually, I think that was like like 2010. Yeah, it's, I think been. I think it's pretty. Yeah. It's that's been that's been 21 years ago, Frankie. Think about that. Okay. Put that number in your head. It's great. Sure, it makes you happy. 11 years ago, because I'm not 40. Oh my God! See, great times. <laughs> great times. Math was never a strong so suit. Shit! What were we talking about? Oh, oh okay. no, this is gonna be great. This is gonna be this. This is gonna be this is gonna be one for the for the books, Frankie, right here. Which I promise. Um. Anyways, yeah, most plants today are flowering, and today flowering species outnumber by twenty to one those of fern and cone bearing trees, which are the non-flowering types of plants that still exist today, and those have been around for 200 million years prior to the first bloom appearing 150 million years ago. So fucking, cool. those are old as fuck. Yeah. Also, a little bit of a side note that wasn't in the article, but I don't know if you've ever like looked up like renditions of what ferns looked like back in the day when there was a whole lot more oxygen in the atmosphere because the atmosphere was thicker, but they were Mm-mm. as big as trees. And that shit Whoa. is insane. And if you've never seen an artist's what? rendition of what fossil records have said to be true, then you should look it up because it's fucking wild. Oh my gosh, I love that. Let's post it. I'll see if I can find one for Instagram. Yeah, no, it's so cool. I would like to have a plant that is as big as my house. Thanks. Always. Only. You know? Yeah. Oh, this was a fun fact. So, as I was saying, flowers, as the as you see them today, came about in the Cretaceous period which is around 130 million years ago. And in geological time, that's fairly recent. If you compressed all of Earth's time into one hour, if we had all existed, like if the whole bit of time had for the Earth's existence was in compressed into an hour, plants, flowering plants specifically, would only exist for the last 90 seconds. Wow, really? Yeah, and it's been over a hundred million years that they've existed. And in that hundred million years, they've diversified so prolifically into one of the most established and widest families in our modern time. Like talking evolutionarily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know, Daniel. That sounds like them science propagandas. Well, you know, if you believe that the earth only existed for 6,500 years, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm just going to go ahead and get ahead of you and let you know that you're not going to agree with almost anything we say. And I'm sorry about it. I'm not actually sorry about it at all. We have a similar disclaimer every single episode. Every time. Every time. <laughs> um, But yeah, I guess to to kind of sum it up and to kind of like, get past the article realistically 
it's really cool how flowers started, flowering plants started as kind of this like random offset evolutionarily that kind of happened randomly and have now become one of the most common and prolific ways for plants to proliferate, you know? I think that's really fucking cool. And essentially the article just goes on to talk about stuff that we've covered before and stuff that we probably will cover in future episodes about how flowering plants work and stuff of that nature. But mm-hmm. but the the prime idea behind it all is that flowers are fucking wild and you should probably take a rat down a rabbit hole about the history of flowers and where they came from because it's pretty crazy. Yeah, that'd be a cooler one to go deeper into because I wonder if like the evolution of flowers grows simultaneously with the evolution of um, like small beings because and like pollinators, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you want to look at like evolutionary evolutionarily, though, small beings, insects have existed longer than most things. So I do. I mean, it could be that they did grow in numbers with bugs, though. It would be a cool thing to read about. I don't really know. I wonder if they're affected by like human beings being like, oh, this is pretty, you know? And so we like continue to propagate that because we like flowers. We like things that smell good and look good. Well, I mean, you can see that. That's like tried and true. We know that the beginnings of civilization in the sense that people stopped and settled, like became non-nomadic and had like actual roots set in a place that they 100% brought plants with them, spent years trying to get those plants to have desired effects. Even if they didn't mean to be doing it, they were always picking the better plants to keep the seeds from. So like that's, yeah, it's absolutely a thing that happened. And I'm sure that beauty of flowers at some point had some stake in that system, you know? Yeah. All right. But article aside, I think that our topic this go around is pretty fucking cool. Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited to cover it. I think that you have a pretty cool few things to talk about, but I think I'm going to lead this week just because I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of urban agriculture. Oh, I love a man that leads. (laughs) I mean, sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) If you're deciding what we're eating for dinner, then yes. (laughs) Only that though. Only that. <laughs> don't just don't move anything. But at dinner, great. Just don't just don't move my shit. It's fine. Um. Yeah. So the history of urban agriculture is actually. Did I even introduce urban agriculture? Or did I just talk amalgously about no, no, what no. we were doing? We, we we already assume that everyone is on our same wavelength. Um. No, we're talking about the future of farming today and gardening. Yeah, which is a future that I think could be pretty cool and pretty rich, but also has a pretty varied and kind of cool history behind it, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that in most things, it's very important to kind of take a step back and look at the history of a thing to try and define how to move forward in the future of a thing. And there Mm -hmm. have been... especially. When it comes to like indigenous wisdom and native wisdom. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Because they were doing something incredibly right that we just kind of came and destroyed. So whatever, whatever, though, whatever. We can do it better. Let's make plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, not not great. I'm sorry. I don't know what voice you were using for that, but I enjoyed it. That's there. my colonizer voice. <laughs> why is it? Why is it that I'm literally picturing like a burly Spanish conquistador with that voice? That's like what I had in my head when you were talking. <laughs> gosh like that spanish moss folklore about the guy <laughs> that like gets caught in a tree and dies and his beard turns into spanish moss that's mm. the image i have in my head lots of voice <laughs> oh no i'm stuck in the tree <laughs> oh jesus oh, i am so sorry y'all um you know i think we lost all our listeners <laughs> i am a Pretty confident that we have said and done way worse in previous episodes, so I'm not going to... Yeah, but I probably I edited it out. <laughs> I love... You're talking about it like it's a live show right now. Yeah. Yeah, but like I was saying, in a lot of ways, I think that we kind of have an idea that urban agriculture is futuristic, that it's something that we're working towards and not something that we've actually done before. But in the reality, in reality, it couldn't be much further from the truth. Urban agriculture has been around since almost the origins of civilization, like true civilization. But a lot of documented and like well-known ideas date back as far as like 3500 BC, like been around cool. for fucking ever. Oh, what you mean? Sustainable farming started with humanity being sustainable. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I think you might be taking that a little bit too far. How do I rephrase <laughs> to to make sure that you don't assume the obvious? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean um, commodifying plants is bad? <laughs> I mean, no. Capitalism is bay. We love capitalism. <laughs> that's my that's my shit. Let's sell t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's horrible. Never mind. <laughs> oh God. Oh no. Oh God. I just feel so conflicted and ugh. It's hard. It's hard to be a human at this day and age. It truly is. I mean, it's always been hard to be a human for different reasons. I've been living through incredibly unprecedented times as far as our lifetimes have gone, you know? Mm-hmm. But here we are, and we're doing it, and it's fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah, let's talk about plants. It's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Except all our forests are burning, <laughs> and everything's flooding, and all the plants are dying, and the pollinators. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I think that a lot of urban agriculture boils down to the problem of distribution and making sure that inner city areas have a reliable source of food. Totally. Um, and it's been a part of the world for so long. And once you start seeing cities become larger, then you kind of have to deal with the idea of ensuring food security. Yeah. Not to say that we do a great job of it these days, but <laughs> something that cities should plan for. Definitely. Um, so one of the first examples I have is in the 1880s in London, which London was considered to be one of the first global industrial cities by means of population and having access to the world as a whole through distribution. A lot of the rise of that, though, and being a global industrial city included kind of the development of massive slums, if you will, mm. 
where impoverished people were kind of pushed out of the more wealthy parts of the city in all pushed into one area together, which we see still today in gentrification. It's the same mm. concept. But in an attempt to improve the quality of life for the poor parts of these cities, the public park system was created. At least that's the first time that it's like written, documented that there was a public park system in a global city hmm. was in 1880s London. Interesting. So when we're talking about urban farming in its history, I think it's important to note that the Salvation Army back in early London days, back in the 1880s, as I said, did pioneer a program of farm colonies that were designed specifically to be used in urban areas to help poor people feed themselves in the slums that I was mentioning. Now, I also think it's incredibly important to say that I fucking hate <laughs> the modern Salvation Army. Yeah. I don't know I don't know a whole fuck ton about its history, but I hate them. Yeah, they do not like gay people. <laughs> so back when London was kind of growing and they saw the need for urban farming and were kind of trying to set some plans in place, a lot of people kind of looked at urban farming as the only means to self-sufficient as the only means to self-sufficiency. So when we're talking about London and its growth, you kind of have to talk about Ebenezer Howard. What a good name. Right? Ebenezer Howard kind of had this vision um, of urban growth for bigger cities, and he called them garden cities. And so the garden city movement is is or was essentially a method of urban planning that allowed self-contained communities to exist while being surrounded by green belts. Cool. And the green belts is where you would grow everything. It's where the farming would take place. And it would also be uh, able to supply food for anybody inside the garden city. So is it like circular then? Like uh, designed as in circular patterns? Yeah. Yeah, so the ideal construction of the garden cities, which this is obviously in the opinion of Ebenezer Howard because he was the one that kind of pioneered this idea in London. It's not the first time it was ever done, mm -hmm. but in London. Um, the ideal construction was that it would house 32,000 people on 9,000 acres, which is pretty decent. Yeah. Um, and then it would be concentric in pattern with open spaces, public parks, and those would be created in six radial boulevards huh. that were each 120 feet wide, all extending from the center. Huh, that's cool. So it's kind of hard to envision. Yeah, like spokes on a wheel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar to that. Um, and so this, so obviously 32,000 people is not like, a lot of people, right, anymore. Back then, I'm sure it was a very significant amount. But in modern times, that seems like a pretty insignificant amount of people. I live in a very small city. We live in a very small city, and it's still only 100,000 people strong. Yeah. So. I'm thinking, like, immediately I thought about how that would only work in some places. Like, it might work here in the Midwest, but it wouldn't work anywhere with any kind of terrain. 
Yeah, it's absolutely true. And obviously his vision was based on London and the UK in specific, which tends to be less hilly, yeah. Hilly and mountainous. Yeah. Um Yeah. And the idea was that where a city couldn't fit could still be useful and you would connect those by trains and road systems. Mm-hmm. And then have the bulk of the population, as is currently true, existing in city areas, but trying to make them self-sufficient. Again, Howard initiated this idea in 1898, which is a very significant amount of time ago. So back then, I feel like it would probably have been pretty ideal for where they were living. And the idea, obviously, was to gain the benefits of rural and urban life. While escaping the negatives of both. Sure. So what happened to it? There are still, a f- there are a couple surviving still. They're not used as they were mm. in their full like idea. But Howard was able to build Letchworth, Brenton Garden Suburb, and Welwyn Garden. Hmm. And all of them have some vestiges of their previous life still remaining, but not. The full idea kind of went to shit. As population grew, there's kind of a terminus for cities like that to be able to self-sustain and increase in population. Interesting. Well, if you live in the UK or have been there, uh, send us pictures, propagatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to send us money, we'll go on a UK tour ourselves. (laughs) But that obviously London wasn't the only place that had like space for urban gardening. I think another one of the ones that I had read about that I thought was pretty cool was um, Israeli urban gardening, which uh, kind of happened a little a little bit more recently, but not not recently still. So Zionist settlers in the 1920s saw small urban farms as critical to the development of a new Israel. This was like kind of restructuring the way Israel was set up in their minds. But by 1942, they had already developed more than 4,000 urban farms, each of them being fairly sizable. Hmm. And what I thought was kind of cool was that many of these smaller urban farms at the time were comprised of women's settlers associations. Which, if you look into the history of Israel now, they were seen as pivotal in the movement of women's empowerment in Israel. Hmm. And I think it's just kind of cool to see something that was kind of woman-led having a key part in shaping the history of a nation, especially since it's in the books, you know, because yeah, a lot of sure. times they don't get a whole lot of book credit. Yeah. <laughs> but over time, of course, as is common with history history will always be written by those people who were the strongest and had the most so there was a movement quote strongest sure (laughs) right strongest as in the most money and killed the most people Mm. um but over time kibbutzim which is an israeli cluster community that's based around agriculture kind of began to overshadow these smaller farms But Israel still does a lot of urban farming and supplies a lot of its demand in urban farming currently. So it's cool. Cool. Uh, But yeah, I think that there's a lot more to be said about 
modern day and future ideas of urban farming, though, which I think is what Frankie would like to talk to us about. Yeah, I have some really cool things that I didn't even know about that I went down some rabbit holes about because there is some really good ideas out there about how to sustainably and I guess ethically feed people. And, you know, I mean, food is just a need as a human being. I mean, you have to eat. And so being able to sustain a population with good, healthy food, but also like care about the actual plants and the community and have this sustainable and ethical and especially circular economy, it's important. And I think, I hope that we're moving that way. (laughs) You know, honestly, I'm normally a fairly pessimistic person about the future, (laughs) but I do think that moving forward, if we're going to have any kind of solid or reasonable future, it's going to have to include some level of urban farming. There's absolutely no way around it at this point. If you have such large amounts of people existing in urban areas, how are you going to be able to avoid sustaining them locally yeah just they won't work for forever because commercial farms are the bane of the climate world they're very bad for the environment they Mm -hmm. typically don't work in systems that allow them to be agreeable to the environment they're in it's very rare for farmers to be able to profit off of a crop whilst also being convenient and good for the environment and it's not yeah. necessarily the farmer's fault either. I'm not trying to throw fault in that direction. No, no, no. Farmer is just a, the it's shit just end an, of the stick most of the time. Yeah. It's just a very unfortunate situation. Yeah. So in my opinion, if we're going to be sustainable ever at all, or do anything to it, it progress as a people's urban farming has to be part of it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I have so much I want to talk about. I don't even know where to start. Um, I guess since we were talking about history – I went down a little bit of rabbit hole about Victory Gardens. Have you heard of this before? I have a little knowledge of Victory Gardens. I don't have an astounding amount, though. I would love to be educated further. Well, let me just educate you for the second time. (laughs) Nobody needs to know. JK, JK. Um, That's a secret. Well, Victory Gardens were these creations that started... I mean, it might have started, I'm sure it came from somewhere, but it was governmentally regulated in the U.S. during World War I. And it was this community-based food security during the war. And people started to grow produce at their homes to free up food for the war effort and basically to stabilize the U.S.'s food supply. They also did it in backyards, churches, playgrounds, city parks, basically anywhere where you just see grass now, they were actually producing food from, which I think is awesome. It's so wild to me that that is something that just ended. Yeah, We just decided we weren't going to do anymore. Like, why? Yeah, especially since it ended, and then they brought it back for World War II. Um, Yeah. In World War II, these, like, home farmers were growing... 40% of the country's produce from 20 million people. 
which is that's absurd. <laughs> like that's really cool. That's, I'm like I like had to take a second and think about that number, and that's a that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, and it's weird to me that 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 just ended and then lawns took over. Like they just made like the least producing crop that does nothing that just like took over everything and has zero yield. <laughs> oh God! If you know anything about this podcast, you know that we have a very mutual hatred of the we fucking have a beef with cut grass lawn. <laughs> See, but that's the thing that bothers me is like grass is a flowering species like grass was meant to go to seed like i don't mind grass if it's going to seed and producing for natural pollinators or anything like that but the fact that we just cut it short just to look pretty and it's three times more than corn like wh- why what is the point of grass i don't get it well yeah prairies exist for a reason obviously so like natural native grasses are fucking cool as fuck yeah but lawns are stupid. Lawns are stupid. Um, native plants forever. I can't wait to have my own house mm-hmm. one day, which will probably never happen because <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm the bottom rung of middle class at the very best, so home ownership might not right, ever be in the plans for me. Let's put our brains together and send some vibes to the housing market for it to crash <laughs> so that we can buy <laughs> homes and have our own gardens. <laughs> you only got to wait until like, you only got to wait for like five more years. Surely it's, it's got to happen eventually. <laughs> All right, witches, listen up. <laughs> We're casting a spell together. Um, Need the help of everyone. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about Victory Gardens and about the pandemic that we're all still going through. And during this pandemic in 2020, apparently gardening in the U.S. was at an all-time high. And 86 of new gardeners were saying that they were going to continue in 2021, which I haven't seen the stats for this year, but I assume people continue because it's really satisfying to have your own garden. Yeah. And, and there is something definitely to be said about having that level of self-sufficiency that I think a lot of us, a lot of people, not just like just a lot of people in general have been lacking for a long time definitely it's very hard to feel connected to the product that you're consuming when you've never had any part in making it happen yeah you know sure um there is something to be said though of time i mean not everyone has time to have a garden and it can be really guilt-ridden when you look outside and you're like oh my gosh i'm failing my plants (laughs) man and that's also that's just Fucking capitalism, yeah. yo. That's like a capitalistic natural thing that happens with capitalism is, oh, I have to base everything I ever do on production, this time frame production. because. Yeah. yeah, I have to wake up at this time, go to bed at this time and and produce, produce, produce. Yeah. Because um, if I don't, then I'm a piece of shit. I'm failing society and myself. Because my labor is the only thing I have to offer. <laughs> right so fucking wild <laughs> anyways this i swear guys this is not a show about us just hating capitalism it's kind I mean, of it is kind that, of though the deeper we it go into kind the of. plants it's like well i feel like if plants were to have voices they would be like what the fuck are you guys doing like just chill out listen you know eat some sunshine <laughs> drink some water <laughs> y'all have a real serious case of no fucking chill can y'all figure it the fuck out already <laughs> jesus christ okay you know who has no fucking chill a calathea so 
You know how we bought this Oh my god, absolutely year? true. Mine has been dead for a while. Okay, I really tried to kill mine. I really tried because I didn't want to deal with it anymore and it was just stressing me out. So I threw it outside and I was like, I'm not thinking about you any longer. It came all the way back to life. It has like 12 leaves now. And so now I brought it back in for the winter and I'm like, no, this is not how I wanted this to go. It's- it's going to be a never-ending cycle, Frankie. I swear to it's you. Gonna it's going to live forever, and then end. I'm eventually going to love it, and then it'll die once I love it. <laughs> Dude, my Xanadu, I thought that it like, got really bad scale, so I thought it was going to die. Oh, no. So I like put it outside, and it was a little bit early to even put it outside this year. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put it outside and put some neem on it because I don't want it to get all. I don't want any scale to get on the rest of my plants. And it is thriving outside right now it came back with a fucking vengeance it's wild yeah that happened with my um philodendron siloam those really big philodendron leaves that Mm -hmm. are like the size of your entire body um it completely defoliated and i stuck it outside and was like oh whatever maybe you'll come back and it's like all the way alive again (laughs) So happy, I'm sure. Yeah, so happy. That's why I want to live somewhere warm and sunny. It's like, I just want to leave you all outside all the time, and then I'll take care of you when you need it. But I just want to look at you because you're pretty. (laughs) What the word? Well, I'll miss you if you move, but I will definitely come visit. (laughs) Um, Anyway, back to the podcast. So let's go to current times. We talked a little bit about the pandemic. The cool thing about veggies today um is that we have bred them so that they thrive in smaller spaces and so you have more yield per plant in smaller spaces which i think is awesome because it really helps us to have like indoor gardens and you can have greenhouses that produce food for restaurants and there are even these really cool like they look like um coolers but basically they are growing systems for inside of restaurants so that they constantly have fresh herbs and plants for their salads and whatever how cool yeah into that into that yeah um i saw that there was this movement that you know i hope it succeeds don't know if it will but i hope it succeeds that they want the government to produce programs for shorter work weeks and then introduce planting programs in those other days, which I think would be kind of cool. How cool would that be? I'm not going to hold out breath, hold my breath <laughs> no. for it, but it'd be f- pretty fucking cool, though. I think they're pushing for the climate core to be a thing, which I think would also be cool, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Another thing that is currently in the works is vertical farming. So this is really cool technology to me basically they're called farm scrapers it's like in cities you know we've grown vertically as a culture and so they're talking about growing greenhouses vertically as a skyscraper and through hydroponics and aeroponics they have this system designed of circular economics so that when a plant dies it becomes compost for the plants growing and these plants are growing in vertical space which i think is so underutilized in our designs currently and yeah so it's like this circular economy which is the best thing you can hope for with plants where everything is reused and there's very minimal quote-unquote waste no more waste than what is absolutely necessary which is dope yeah yeah and it was interesting i was um i follow this instagram called slow factory 
And they talk a lot about how waste is a colonial concept and pre this society, basically, there was no such thing as waste. And so it's really interesting to research these circular economies and see how, you know, it, things were or things can be without the idea of waste. Right. I mean, it's not that hard to imagine a world where you just use everything, you know, that's mm -hmm. we've created stuff that is like meant only to be waste. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just so absurd to me. And it's totally it was totally avoidable, too. Yeah. We had alternatives, but because it was cheaper to produce, we have created waste only products. Like most of the packaging we use in our everyday lives are essentially waste only. Because it makes capital, which is made up anyway. Like it's just none of right. this society makes any sense to me whatsoever. Like people explain it to me and I'm like, yeah, but money is like literally we made it up. We made it up. <laughs> and not only did we make it up a long fucking time ago, but more recently we made it up again. <laughs> like yeah. at least the paper money we used in the US at some point in time gold standard, yeah. had the gold standard. Mm -hmm. So it was backed by something. Now it's a literally paper. Yeah. It's paper. Yeah. It does nothing. Well, cloth, well it's yeah. denim and it's literally denim infused, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Yeah, the other day Stupid I was foraging shit. and picking up acorns and I'm like, I just really don't understand a society where like this imaginary number on a screen is more important than this acorn in my hand. Like it just, I cannot wrap my brain around it and I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it, y'all. Why do we live in this society? How did this happen? What can we do about it? Diligence. So all we can do now is try and be diligent in our in our own use and push for political change. What do you do? Yeah, there are already very organized activists out there. So um, anyways, but to the vertical farming, there are benefits and detriments to that, though. Um, the benefits, obviously, are no transport and there's year round production. Um, you reduce CO2 commission, uh, um, reduce CO2 emissions because, again, no distribution right um which relieves a lot of strain put on traditional agriculture which is where we have a lot of strain now um they have automated processes op there's optimal yields because they can design it to do the best that it can possibly be um as in regards to water consumption and fruit production and all of that and we don't have to deforest we don't have to cut down trees to make these because yeah, we already make have farms. skyscrapers and cities. The detriments, though, however, there are a few. There are a lot of energy requirements because it all runs on artificial lights. For it to be the optimal yield, you can't do sunlight. And it has to be artificial light. Artificial. Um, soil microbes, because there's no soil, because it's mostly aeroponics. You have to reintroduce that. Um, loss of jobs because of automated processes, but, you know. I'm sure any lost job would be replaced, though. You know what I mean? Like I also, I don't know how I feel about loss of jobs because as a society, why aren't we working towards not having to labor so much? Like, obviously, right. our society isn't set up to get rid of its labor force, but why do we need to work so much when so many things can be automated? 
One step at a time, Frankie. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Am I being too One radical? One step at a time. <laughs> no, you're being just radical enough. Just, <laughs> just over here thinking about acorns, honestly, y'all. Like, I just want to collect acorns all day. Um, there is a high risk because power failure is a thing. And, you know, if the power goes out, um, and then also nat- uh, natural what? pollination. <laughs> Did you like my reaction? <laughs> Juno, Juno, be on the podcast. Tell the audience what you think. She has some. She has something to say, and that is that Dad never pays her any attention, and that she is spoiled for love and touch, or not spoiled, de- deprived of love and touch, obviously. So then, moving on, I want to talk about rooftop gardens because these are really cool. There was a study done by Columbia, and New York has 6,000 acres of farmable land, if you include rooftops. That's a lot. Yeah, right? What? That's pretty cool. I'm like, it's wild for me to to like picture the idea of 6,000 acres of just a rooftop. Yeah. That's absurd. Well, it has to be a rooftop, though. So it seems like you can't just put a garden on any roof. You have to have one that the roots won't penetrate. So you have to be able to put a layer down so that it won't mm-hmm. destroy the building structure. And also it has to be able to take the load and the capacity, you know, the weight. Yeah. Um. It's fucking crazy. But yeah, yeah. that's dope. Yeah, though. I can't. Cool. So the earliest records, going back to history a little bit, were the ancient ziggurats of Mesopotamia around 4,000 to 6,000 BC of rooftop, rooftop gardens. So it's like this, none of this is new. Like the future is not anything really that's new. Like we're not coming up with new ideas. We're re-implementing things that worked <laughs> that somehow ended. <laughs> like the hanging gardens of Babylon, which I always like when you talk about, what is it, seven ancient wonders? That was always the one mm-hmm. that entranced me as a kid was the hanging gardens of Babylon. Can you imagine... Had you been able to see that, I'm sure it was just so amazing. Yeah. I Yeah. Wow. I fantasize about it all the time. But apparently it was like 75 feet above ground were these terraced hanging plants. So rooftop gardens became a little bit less um, novel and romantic, I guess I should say. Like they, they, they became more practical instead of being like this is where we gather and have parties and oh look at my beautiful plants on my rooftop you know it became like an actual irrigation system and structured in germany in the 1970s um and they started to be developed and marketed on a bigger scale and nowadays there is this roof farm which i was so excited to research and I we need to go visit in St. Louis called the Food Roof Farm. St. Louis. Let's go. Yeah, I like St. Louis. Um, I've only been once in my life and my dad, who is a super mega art fan, <laughs> I guess is what I would say. He's an artist. Um, he found these people making replicas of Da Vinci paintings like literally with the materials that he would have used. And so we went and we got invited to their studio because my dad was like, oh my God, I love your work. And they were like, oh my God, come see our studio. So we went and they literally let me at 12 years old crush up beetles and make blue paint. And it was so cool. (laughs) 
That sounds amazing. It was awesome. I, I will always have fond memories of St. Louis. But anyway, so there's this food roof in St. Louis. And it was built in 2015 above a two-story storage facility, which, brilliant, amazing. We have so many storage facilities. Why don't we have food roofs on every single one of them? That is so smart. Yeah, well, they're built. Can't hurt. Yeah, they're built for it. It is 8,500 square feet. And these architects, horticulturalists, structural engineers, and ergonomists came together to create... Wait, what was that last one? Ergonomists... I was hoping the you wouldn't ask because I don't actually know what that means. Let me Google it real fast. <laughs> <laughs> my bad. Agronomist. That's what it is. It's the scientific oh. study of soil management. My bad. Sorry, agronomists. <laughs> I I know what an agronomist is. I just am dyslexic and wrote it wrong. <laughs> agronomist. I was so I was like so ready to learn a new word, frankly. I, was I like, thought what it had something to do with space, honestly. I was like, sure, yeah, cool. <laughs> So anyway, this system by Argonomists. <laughs> oh, I love that. The Argonomists added <laughs> again. The Argonomists. Hey, if you're an Argonomist, send us a message. Um, but the system was proven, proven to capture 17,000 gallons of runoff per storm. 17,000 gallons of runoff. So basically... Wait, per storm? Per storm. So this entire food roof of 8,500 square feet like mitigates flooding for all of downtown St. Louis. So cool. <laughs> That's honestly baffling to me. Yeah. Per storm. I didn't... Per storm. Yeah. <laughs> Which, That's, That's absurd to me. So it equates to, to 1,819,000 gallons annually. That's a number my brain doesn't wrap around. <laughs> yeah. Just don't have it in that me. That is wild. How cool is that? Anyways, so this food roof, because it has all of that storm runoff, has 50% less irrigation needs than a traditional farm. And here's, I know, right? <laughs> God, it just all makes so much I know. sense. It's... <laughs> um, here's the cool part that I really love. Um, I mean, it's all cool, but <laughs> the food that is grown on this food roof goes to those with less access to healthy grown vegetables. So it all goes to the underprivileged in St. Louis. Well, that's pretty dope. Yeah. And there's over 250 kinds of veggies, fruits, herbs, and flowers. It's a habitat for over 40,000 honeybees. And they also have five chickens, which they feed farm scraps. And chickens give the farm fertilizer and eggs. That also goes... And pest... And pest control. And pest control, exactly. Uh, in 2017, they produced 4,000 pounds of organic food. Pretty cool. Damn. I, I am so in love with this food roof. <laughs> we have to go there. Yeah, I really want to see it. Honestly, I'm, I'm dedicating this coming year to travel. Love it. I want to travel a bunch, so we should go to some places. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing about food roofs. I feel like they could really be the future without changing too much. I mean, if we're going for a full overhaul, sure. But if we're just trying to change little things, food roofs, I think are a really great compromise because it buffers heating and cooling needs. There's less chemical use, less water use, less flooding, especially with all of this crazy climate change flooding that's been happening. Yeah. Could you imagine if New York city had as had food roofs like that? It probably wouldn't have mitigated all of that have gone through so much. Yeah, totally. Hell this past little while. Absolutely. And plus like 
fresh veggies. <laughs> People don't have to wade through sewer water and then also fresh veggies. Like, sounds good to me. <laughs> God, so crazy. Well, anyways, it's, yeah. Well, fu- I think what fucks me up the most is that it's just all seems so logical in my brain. Yeah practical that the fact that we just don't do any of it is so wild i think the thing we're all coming to realize is that our society is not practical no here's hoping that realization comes sooner rather than later for everyone yeah i mean it's 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 really not built on what do people need what would be good for our society it's built on how can we make money yeah (sighs) anyways and the plants suffer because plants are outside of the money system. I mean, we have commodified them and try to buy and sell them and they're suffering for it. And we're suffering yeah. for it. Especially native and natural plants yeah. are the ones that get hit the hardest because it doesn't make financial sense to have something native when you could have something profitable. Yeah, totally. Well, that brings me to the end, but I do have a fun fact. I love a fun fact. This is a very fun fact. It was sent in by a friend of the pod. In the Apollo 14 mission, the astronaut Stuart Rusa took 500 seeds of trees to the moon and back. And they did that to analyze the effects of radiation on seeds. And... This was a joint effort of the NASA and the U.S. Forest Service, and these trees, like 50 of them, still exist in the world today. Road trip, road trip, okay, but road here's trip. Here's the best thing. We don't have to road trip because one is two miles from my house. <laughs> you know, the fact, the fact that we haven't already been there is bothersome it's to so me. Exciting. How did I not know... How did I not know that there was a living moon tree in Asheville? I didn't know either. I was so excited when I read this. And then we looked it up the other day. And then there's literally one in the Asheville Botanical Gardens. And it's just right there. I need to go I, hug we, it. I, yeah, we need to go see that shit. We need need it. Need it. Yeah. Need it. All right. Let's need do it. it. Let's plan. All right. Get out your planner. Let's figure out one. I don't have a planner. So why I'm such a mess. I yeah, I would be screwed without a planner. <laughs> well, I am screwed all the time. So here we go. Well, I couldn't. I also never opened my planner pre ADHD medication. So I that's what I do. I have planners. <laughs> I I own them. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for allowing us this time to rest and recalibrate. We're so glad to be back. We missed you all so much. We really love this and we really love you all. And sometimes, you know, life just has to come first. Mm-hmm. And I, we really do appreciate any patience and all the patience that you guys have given us. All right. So if you would like to know more and you need to see more and you want to see these articles and stuff, the best place to go is our website. You know, it's so easy to find. All you got to do is look at whatever app you're listening on (laughs) figure out how to spell propagated because (laughs) apparently nobody's very good at that (laughs) and go to propagatedpodcast.com frankie's been a lot of time and energy making the website look amazing it's very navigable it's gonna link you to our instagram and also 
it's going to give you a nifty option to support us in a financial way if you have the means to do so. So if you go to our website and feel as if you would like to hear more from us and allow us to dedicate more of our time and life to this podcast that we do, you can find our link to Patreon on the website, and we would love to see you there. We also have a coffee, Ko-Fi, however you pronounce mm-hmm. it. I don't really know. It's K-O-F-I. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can't dedicate to a monthly donation, then we would love for any kind of one-time donation. Again, not trying to come out here money-grabbing. Yeah, if you can't afford it, don't I mean, do fine. it. Just but, listen to the pod, you know? We're, we are free. Yeah. But, hey, I do want to say it is our birthday month coming up. Daniel's is on the 6th, and mine is on the 25th. And if you want to buy us a birthday drink, we would love that. <laughs> and... Also, if you can't financially support us, the easiest way uh-huh, for uh-huh, us to uh-huh. get supported otherwise is for you to rate and review us on whatever app you're listening on. Now, I know that Spotify doesn't necessarily give you the option, mm-hmm. but almost every other platform does. And if you have a couple extra minutes to just sit down and give us a five-star review, tell us what you love, and it would be immeasurably awesome. It makes our day. It would help us out time. significantly. We screenshot it and send it to each other. <laughs> Every new review is a day made. Uh-huh. Or, you know, if you don't have a review, just tell your friend. Be like, hey, I listen to these awesome people. They talk shit about capitalism. <laughs> right. They love plants. I don't know. It's cool. Listen to it. <laughs> also, we love interacting with you guys personally, too. So our email is going to be on the website as well. If you can't leave a review, uh, then email us. Tell us what you like. Tell yeah, us if there's something you'd like to hear you. that we've not covered. We love interacting with you guys. So just take take some time out and... Let us hear from you. Send us pictures of your plants. We love to get those. We swoon over And animals. Babies. I know we're, we're, we're plant people, but I'm also animal peoples oh, as yeah. well. So I, if you got if you got cute animals, even weird, like if you got a cool tarantula, send me a picture. Cool snake. Yeah. I want to see that. I have an axolotl. <laughs> you got you got a pig that roams around your house. Awesome. Oh, my God. You got yeah. Anything. Honestly, if you have a pet that you love. Then send yeah, it to us because we'll love it too. I also um, am thinking about adopting a dog. So if you got a cute dog, send your cute dog our way. Oh my God. We're going to have dog photo shoots together. Oh, yes. Juno and whatever you name yours in the future. I'm thinking maybe POA after POA CE, the grass genome <laughs> or whatever it's called. I I love <laughs> that. I love that. Yeah. That's really cute. Also very androgynous. So it doesn't matter. I think a dog named POA would be really cute. I know I said that maybe a cat, Poa. but I feel like Poa is more of a dog name. Poa. I like it. Yeah. Poa. Cool. Anyways, thanks for listening, right. y'all. We love you and we missed you. See you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. I'm so scared to press anything. <laughs>